Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. New variants are having an impact in Peel. The registered nurses say, no, the schools should be closed. Who should be investigating the Kamloops residential school case? And great news for Hamilton's Entertainment District. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Going to be a barn burner this weekend. Don't forget the sunscreen. Nothing worse than a masked tan line. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show here. Scott Thompson! There you go. All right, we are hearing more and more about uh, a variant. Uh, This is the variant out of India, now called the Delta variant, and uh, it has Dr. Lowe in Peel Region very concerned uh, and and is seeing more of this in that community. Let's bring in Dr. Alan Weisman, infectious disease specialist with the University Health Network, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How concerned are you about uh, this new variant? How concerned are you with it uh, and its presence in Peel right now? Yeah, so it is expected that we're going to see more cases of this variant in Ontario uh, because there has been travel in the past and the cases, uh, because of this variant being more transmissible, invariably is going to be the most common variant here in, in Ontario. As to whether we're going to see another wave as a result of the variant, it all depends on how quickly we're able to vaccinate people with the second doses. And the reason is that we know that the vaccine is effective, the vaccine we're using here in Canada is effective against the variant. It's just that the protection is much better with the second dose. That's really what it what it's going to come down to. Uh, so at this point, uh, I think it's about 70% of Canadians have already had their first shot. That's pretty impressive when you look at uh, what's happening around the world and such, and specifically south of the border, who started off like gangbusters, but then have kind of eased off a little bit. Um, are, are you hopeful? Uh, obviously you are, but how concerned are you that uh, that we won't or that uh, can we get that second dose into people uh, before the variant takes hold, or is that 70% enough to keep us going? I think overall the likelihood of this variant causing a significant rise in cases like it has to some degree in the UK is, is low. I think we're going to likely we're going to be okay. And so even if the variant does take over, even if it becomes the most common strain, as long as the overall numbers of cases remain low, which means the number of hospitalizations and deaths are also remaining low, then it won't result in us having to go back into lockdowns or those kinds of measures that have been in place. So I think the vaccination numbers are reassuring and the numbers continue to rise, such that even if it becomes the most dominant strain, the numbers, the total case numbers will remain low. And it seems now there's a great effort on to speed up that second dose as a result of this. That's key here, right? Absolutely. And so data that came out of the UK just a few days ago showed that there is a significant difference between one versus two doses uh, of um, protection from this uh, against this new variant. So it's somewhere below around 30 to 40 percent less effective compared to the currently um, to the current uh, vaccines that we have the current the current strain versus somewhere between 90 and 95 percent effective when you when you have the second dose. So it's it's really good news showing that as long as you're doubly vaccinated, your likelihood of getting the disease is low. But it just means that there's more pressure to have those second doses in. The more people we uh, vaccinate and the more people who are vaccinated, uh, does this prevent the formation of other variants? Uh, Variants form as there's a lack of vaccine, as more and more vaccine is available. Does that reduce the amount of new variants we may see? Yeah, exactly. So the more transmission events we see, the more opportunity the virus has to infect new people. Uh, across the world, the more likelihood that a variant will arise. And it's it's just a numbers game. Mutations occur at some, you know, interval. And the more opportunity it has to create mutations, the more likely you'll see new variants. And this is similar to other infectious diseases we deal with. And so the, the more control we have over the disease, not just in Canada, the less likely variants will arise everywhere in the world. Uh, we, we've certainly seen numbers going down over the last week, and it's been very positive. However, we're slowly starting to see numbers tick back up again with new cases uh, in Ontario, and this appears to be a direct result of the long weekend. Yep, it, it certainly might be. Uh, the long weekend was about 
uh, eight, nine days ago now. So it certainly could be uh, as a result of that. Overall, the, the modeling that was shown about two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, showed that there may be a small bump that occurs as, uh, in the next you know, one to two weeks in the middle of June. But it doesn't look like this will lead to any significant rise as it had in wave two or wave three. So, of course, everyone's watching the numbers very carefully, but uh, it doesn't look like it'll result in such significant rise as it had before. We've certainly seen uh, the toll that this disease, has, this virus has taken on the world over over the last year or so. Um, many young people getting sick with it now or in this, the third wave, not so much now. Uh, those numbers are going down, but we're certainly hearing more and more about long haulers, people who have had the virus and are still seeing lingering effects of it. What can you tell us about that, doctor? Yeah, there's been a lot of ongoing studies across the world about what the effects of the virus are long-term, which would make it very distinct from other viral infections of the lung that don't generally have these long-term effects. So there is a lot of ongoing research onto this. The, you know, the exact percentages and the severity of these long-haul, as it's called, uh, symptoms, it's, it's not yet clear. And we're going to probably know a little bit more about it over the next few months. But there is a collection of symptoms that people have described as a result of having had the infection, which could include people having um, some changes, some cognitive changes, some fatigue. Um, some In the past, there has been description of the long-term effects on the heart. And so it's not quite clear yet the exact incidence of this, but it's, you know this will be clarified over the next few months. We're going to be learning a lot about this from, for quite a time to come, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. Um, there's so many permutations of this illness now due to various uh, variants and also people having had partial immunity or complete immunity having had the virus. So there's various things to learn about of how humans have reacted to acquiring the infection. Dr. Alan Vaisman with us, infectious disease specialist with the University Health Network, talking about variants and, uh, of course, the great vaccination uh, process we are all in now, seeing 70% of Canadians vaccinated, but we got to keep uh, hustling and we got to keep working towards that second dose. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, I'm going to bring the uh, Registered Nurses Association uh, in here in just a second. But, you know, we were we were joking the other day about how uh, the news conference when uh, the premier announced that, nope, sorry, schools are not going to reopen. And a lot of people were ticked off. A lot of people surprised. A lot of people said, yeah, you know, that's the right thing to do. I mean, it depends what side of the fence you're on, I guess, here. Um, but yeah, they were, they were, the opposition before the news conference was even over was sending out, uh, press releases, news releases saying, you know, the school should be open, the school should be open. And today, uh, you know, and this just shows you the politics involved here. Uh, the liberals releasing a, a press release that says regions like Peel, uh, Peel still have a high, uh, COVID-19 rates and are now seeing worrying increases in the Delta variant from India. And Ontario must resume its hotspot strategy and rapidly provide second dose vaccines to residents of these communities to prevent a fourth wave and save lives. So today the press release is about uh, stopping a fourth wave and we've got to increase our uh, strategy for second doses. Yet the one before that's uh, get those schools open. We need the schools open as soon as possible. It's amazing uh, how things uh, fly with the wind, as they say. All right. Uh, again, there is lots of debate over the right decision was made to keep schools open or closed. Uh, the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario uh, supports Premier Doug Ford's announcement to uh, keep the schools closed and uh, says simply the risk is too high. Let's bring in uh, Dr. Doris Greenspan, uh, Grinspan, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for inviting us and with this weather we must do well. Yeah, I know. It's going to be a warm weekend, Doctor. We need to see something good here. I know, absolutely. Yeah, it's something we can run through the sprinkler to. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, so, Doctor, uh, obviously it, it seems that the chorus or, or the, uh, the choir to keep the schools open was greater than that to keep them closed. It seems there's more people upset about the situation. However, the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario has a different take on this. What is it? Yeah, we have a different take, and so do several top epidemiologists. I must just mention David Fisman is one. 
uh, Dr. Law is another one, uh, the chief medical officer on PIL. Uh, listen, we are finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, finally. To risk that light and then mess up the summer for every single person, including all kids, in July and August, because we may spread the virus unintentionally, which would happen likely, uh, is too risky versus let's stay focused, let's roll out full vaccination in hotspots and everywhere. Full vaccination means two doses. Let's prepare the schools for a grand opening in September, which means the ventilation. It means to have the teachers vaccinated. It means the 12 years old all vaccinated. And then what we are asking, though, the premier, is for children that their parents cannot afford, uh, summer camps, for example, or day camps, for example, outdoors, not indoors, let's have the government provide some type of subsidies or free camps for children of compromised communities. So they also can enjoy the summer in one way or shape and all other kids can too. The risk is too high um, uh, and, and it can really derail us versus, and it's not just derail us in terms of the spread, it's derail us in many other aspects. Because if we have a spread again, then it means uh, we will be distracted from vaccination. If we have a spread again, it means surgeries again will be postponed, not just the backlog of three and a half years, but five, six years. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Let's stay focused and do what's right, and let's try to suffocate once and for all this nasty virus. And, uh, we and certainly... let's not forget, by the way, that there are the variants that are taking hold, not only and... here, but in other places. And that's obviously what they're concerned about, uh, as you were mentioning, with Dr. Lowe in, in uh, Peel region and yeah. such. Everybody knows, everybody realizes that the kids need to be in school, that obviously uh, there, there's a great price to pay with having them out. Uh, we've heard of the mental illness aspects of this and, and et cetera. Uh, but even with that, you, you still think it's best to just stay the course and, and keep them out for the next three weeks. So we all nurses absolutely Every single nurse understands the value of schools, the value of schools for mental, social, right, the interaction with kids, they love it, and intellectual development of children and their well-being. Absolutely we do. But it's not, it's not so black and white. If you were to open schools and the virus spread, it means we messed up even their lives yet again, right, for July and August. So we are talking risking three weeks for an entire summit of risk, which will derail us from the whole plan to really suffocate the virus once and for all. Uh, we've seen uh, it's been a great week in the sense that we've seen uh, new case numbers go down in Ontario and we're below that magical 1000 mark. Unfortunately, in the last few days, and many are saying this is just the fallout of a, of a long weekend in May. Uh, we're slowly starting to see things increase again. Uh, the numbers today uh, uh, up to uh, 914. They were 870 yesterday, uh, 733 the day before, 699 the day before that, and then up over 900 the day before that. Are you concerned, uh, doctor, that uh, this is post-May-long uh, weekend uh, fallout? Absolutely, and we said so. We said yeah. that this will be the case. But listen, when we will see the numbers going down in a couple of weeks because the schools didn't reopen, right? And when we will see, and hopefully we behave, and then the numbers will go down, you know what people will say? Oh, we didn't need to keep the schools closed because the numbers yeah. are going down. Well, yeah. the numbers will be going down because we kept the schools closed. Let's please remember that. The numbers are going up because of what happened that weekend. It was jam-packed. People were gathering together. So let's be careful as, as citizens, all of us. The schools were kept closed to drive the numbers down, 
and to suffocate this virus and to get moving faster than ever with vaccination and please with preparing schools, which we will continue to push the government on that. Let's also do our own individual and family jobs of driving the virus down by not getting together with 30 people, 40 people, you know what I mean, in indoors, because then we will not achieve anything. Uh, obviously, we're talking about we've started uh, vaccinating kids 12 plus, and uh, it, it looks like uh, a lot of kids could have their second shot as they get back to school in September. Thank Are you? you I hope that yeah, my it, grandson. It, it certainly is looking that way. It's certainly looking that way, doctor. Does that make you feel confident about a safe return in September? Yes, yes. If we also prepare the schools, we must prepare the schools, especially vis-a-vis ventilation. That has not gone away. The issue of needing to fix the ventilation in schools and to ensure that you know we still can tackle the public health measures that we may need with new variants, because remember, there are kids that are younger than 12, many, many, many of them, right? So, so that brings us to a much better place, both the kids, 12-year-olds, and also the teachers, hopefully a large percentage vaccinated. But we still have a lot of kids younger than 12, therefore we still need to fix the problem with schools. And we should be fixing the problems in schools, quite frankly, regardless of COVID-19. Dr. Doris Grinspun with us, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and the RNAO supporting uh, the schools remaining closed through the duration of this school year. Uh, Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. And please pass along to those in the association how much we appreciate all that everyone is doing on the front lines for us. Thank you so very much, and I will sure pass it on. And thanks also to the media for playing a critical role during the pandemic. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dr. Don Laval, Harvard, uh, who's been helping us out through all of this, president of the Ontario Native Women's Association and director at Trent University, and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I think we're going to get you on the payroll soon and maybe make you a co-host here. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I can be co-host by this point. That's great. Exactly. Well, you know what? We could probably all use the education. It wouldn't hurt any of us. Uh, obviously, we've, we've been talking uh, the last couple of days about this, Doctor, and, and, and you know, I was quizzing you on what's next in legalities and so on and so forth, over and above all of the truth and reconciliation uh, work that's been done here. We're hearing that the RCMP, I'm sort of getting conflicting information, and I'm not sure exactly what the role they will play here. Maybe you can help us out with this. The RCMP, I'm seeing headlines, RCMP to hold an investigation, and then I'm seeing other headlines that are saying the RCMP say they're playing a supportive role here. So what is the role of the RCMP and, and legal officials here, Doctor? Well, this is where it's gotten complicated. As you said, you know, we first saw the RCMP came forward and said they're going to be conducting an investigation, which, you know, as we mentioned the other day, the, the disposal of human beings in this way is a crime. We're not talking about ancient Viking burial grounds. Yeah. You know, so clearly there needs to be an investigation. I think there was some concerns raised in the community about the approach and the way this started. Um, From what I understand, many community members reached out to Senator Murray Sinclair when they felt that, you know, the police were on site, they were questioning family and community members when, and, and they were feeling intimidated about this. When, let's be honest, if there's any questioning that needs to be done, the questioning needs to be of those who were responsible for running this church, those who, for running this residential school, and that was the church. So uh, what involvement uh, will the communities have here? I mean, obviously, this is something that should be done in conjunction with the community, and obviously some sensitivity is needed towards that. Well, from what I'm seeing now, the RCMP has said that they are playing a supportive role and that the decisions about you know what kind of investigation, about what is to be done in terms of uh, protecting those bodies or exhuming them and investigating, um, they're now saying that that responsibility, that that leadership will come from the community. 
I, I think, you know, there still really needs to be an acknowledgement that of the criminality of, we don't even know what happened to these children. We haven't even got to that conversation, but even just the disposal of the bodies. Is, is this something for the RCMP at this point, or is this something for the Prime Minister? And everybody's kind of waiting for direction from here. Well, and, you know, there's unfortunately a lot of mistrust between Indigenous community and the RCMP. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't remember, the RCMP and its predecessor, the Northwest Mounted Police, you know, were essentially created to keep uh, the so-called Indians in line at that era of our history and relationships have been um, dodgy at best since that era you know there's a long history of racism against indigenous peoples and indigenous communities so you know while the rcmp would be the ones who are responsible there's there's a long history of mistrust there so i think they're really going to have to sit down and come to some kind of understanding about how this is going to work. I mean, there are a number of Indigenous tribal police forces, but, you know, this also needs to be, those who are responsible need to be held accountable. And unfortunately, through the Truth and Reconciliation, you know, through that process, through the class action lawsuit, uh, the Catholic Church was essentially let off the hook by the Canadian government shouldering and, and taking on that responsibility. So there's, you know, the community is still waiting for the church to take up the responsibility for the harm they've caused. Will they, considering they had that out in the Truth and Reconciliation Report? Well, considering the number of church institutions that did not uh, provide the documentation that they had agreed to, um, that did not provide the funds that they had agreed to, there's a lot of skepticism in the community that about you know their willingness to do so and the pope's refusal but i'm really hoping that this is a turning point i mean we saw recently that the archbishop cardinal collins in toronto has come out with a statement saying that we must recognize the betrayal of trust by many catholic leaders who were responsible for operating residential schools the fact that a a bishop that a cardinal would come out with that kind of statement shows that you know some people within these institutions are starting to wake up and recognizing that this can't be denied anymore. We can't hide this anymore and that responsibility needs to be taken. But it's and, and again, we're hoping that Prime Minister Trudeau and the government, you know, we demand again an apology and some, you know, you can't have reconciliation if there's not ownership of the harm that was done. Uh, should should we be uh, immediately announcing the search of all of these sites, or is that too intrusive to the community? Again, this is one of those things that each community is at a different place in their healing, and each yeah. community is going to have to go through different ceremonies, different processes to prepare their community for that. I think it's important that it be announced that all of those children will be found and laid to rest and they will have justice for what happened. Uh, but recognizing that communities are going to be approaching that in different ways and that they are going to be approaching it in different time frames based on the needs of each community. Have and we heard that yet, doctor? Just beginning. Have we heard that well, yet? Have we heard that commitment? The prime minister, there was a commitment for the funds. It said to, it would be provided to the community to conduct these kind of investigations yeah. So there does seem to be a, um, I don't really want to say a passing of the buck. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very fine dance between empowering communities to do what needs to be done yeah. uh, versus sort of saying, you know, and, and bobbing it off on communities. So there, there needs to be this dance of how does the federal government and the church take responsibility for their part but yet at the same time ensuring that the communities are taking the lead and how that happens. Um, and I think it was an important first step to ensure that the funds are available so that the investigations can be conducted properly. It seems that uh, the Catholic Church is getting pressure even from uh, their followers uh, and, and the amount of, of memorials we're seeing being placed on, on, on church grounds and such. Is this something that... Uh, 
the followers, the the, uh, the the congregations, the local congregations can make change here and, and put pressure on their leaders. Absolutely. I think whether we look back at the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry, you know, those situations, when the average Canadian citizen opened their eyes and realized what was going on, and we had labor unions starting to speak out, we had, you know, all kinds of people sending letters to the prime minister and because they were realizing this crisis that was happening here in Canada, when it moves from being an indigenous issue to being a human rights issue and all those who are concerned about human rights in Canada start to speak out, that adds the kind of pressure that, you know, if people want to be reelected and those who are in power have to acknowledge and have to open their eyes to see that. So I'm really hoping that in much the same way, a church that is struggling to maintain relevancy in a modern era uh, really needs to see that if the, you know, the community level, if people are demanding accountability here, that the time has come to to be responsible for for what happened as an institution, not just individual, um, you know, not just individual priests, not just you know, individual dioceses or orders, but the institution, the church, the Catholic Church as a whole, um, and the, the one who is responsible for the Catholic Church is the Pope, and so he needs to step forward. Um, obviously, as you've mentioned, we're seeing uh, more local church officials speak up against this, speak out against this, uh, except, as you mentioned, not the Pope. Will they be reprimanded in some way for not rowing in the same direction as the Pope, do you think? Uh, do those local officials have enough power to change things here? Um, <laughs> the one thing I did notice, I'm, I'm really happy that church officials are speaking out about, you know, the wrong that was done. Uh, but we need to move from a place of saying those individuals responsible for those schools and what happened to saying, you know, those institutions responsible. So it's, we can't play a game of saying that it was a few bad apples, so to speak, who were individually yeah. responsible. This was an institution with a very clear goal, and that goal was the eradication of indigeneity and by whatever means, and as we've seen, some, some pretty horrific means. So it, it can't be just fobbed off as or um, put on the shoulders of, you know, sort of, individual bad actors here this was a very clear systemic approach and those responsible for that system and those institutions are still there and need to be held accountable uh who should conduct this investigation what you know and obviously we you know the communities have to have an input here but is this something that uh, a, a police department a police service should investigate is this require something higher at the federal level uh, who should be involved in this investigation well i think what we need to ensure and, and again i'm not a legal expert and i would be happy to defer to one and also be happy to connect you with some forensic experts when we can because what we want to make sure is that whoever is chosen to conduct these investigations and we've seen that with the mercury poisoning in some communities you know that they have an independence and impartiality that we can trust their results, yet at the same time make sure that they will then those results will then be be able to be used in courts, will able to be um, have the legitimacy that they won't be again just overlooked or dismissed because they weren't conducted potentially you know by some uh, specific police force. So you'd have to, and I, I'm not an expert on the legalities of that, but we want to make sure that whoever's conducting, those experts conducting those investigations, are, their results are going to be, are going to stand up when it comes to holding people accountable for potentially not just, you know, I, those results won't just be for identifying those children. There's much larger implications in terms of, as we said, the, the criminal action of disposing of human beings in this way. But potentially, depending on the remains, if there is some insight into uh, what caused the end of life for these angels. And, you know, so there is potentially much larger consequences and much larger impact of that kind of investigation. 
Wow, this is not going to be easy by any means on anyone involved. Um, we were talking about this in an earlier interview as well, Don, uh, about statues and, and facilities, institutions that have been named after various architects or people heavily involved in, in residential schools. The Prime Minister has, uh, in an earlier news conference this morning, actually asked for the name change at Ryerson University, which, um, you know, again, a great debate and, and, and one that should be certainly addressed. Are you surprised the Prime Minister addressed that? Actually, I am surprised the Prime Minister addressed that um, because, you know, there's probably going to be a lot of alumni that are going to be very unhappy but I, for one, don't think I would want to be having that name associated with my name in any way if I was. And mm-hmm. I think anybody with an ounce of moral courage and having any kind of uh, intelligence, you know, anybody who's going to be looking at that and able to see that history would not want to be associated with that. And, you know, I, I think people are finally starting to wake up. I would agree with that. Uh, the Prime Minister certainly has drawn a lot of attention to Indigenous issues um, since his, his his term started, and, and Truth and Reconciliation and such, and, and certainly talked about it uh, a, a lot. It is, is something like this moving the discussion forward? Is he helping? Or, again, is this token talk? I think, you know, having gone, having been in a position of leadership through the Harper era and into the Liberal era, you know, I know that there has been a lot of criticism uh, with the Liberals, that it's a lot of talk, that, you know, they haven't done enough. And to a certain degree, I, I agree that they haven't done enough. But when I look but at... But they are at least you know, talking. They're at least exactly, bringing this stuff up. the conversation and, and yeah. they are doing something. And they are yeah. doing something in a way that you know, generations of previous governments didn't do anything to even start the conversation or to address any of it. So, you know, you can't undo generations of oppression, abuse, and negligence in Indigenous communities within a four or, you know, even within two terms in government. So we do have to, when I get frustrated, I remind myself to look back at where we were even 10 years ago, uh, much less 50 years ago, to see that even though the pro progress is frustratingly slow uh, we are at least moving in the right direction and I, I really do hope and think that you know this this particular discovery and unfortunately we know that it is just the first of many that once they start investigating the ho- the true horrors the, you know the true knowledge of the the depth and the the breadth of this horror is going to come forward and now that we know I mean, people can't unknow that. And so then they it really means making a choice about what side you're taking in this, what stand you're going to take on this particular issue. Yeah, it, it's 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 going to be hard to put the lid back on this, and no one can can move forward with this and, and not and, and not take some sort of action. I, I think it's too late for all of uh, to go back now. That's for sure. Especially when there's other sites that see, still need to be examined. How does the prime minister address that his own father was one of these architects, one of these people that are named when uh, we are talking about uh, historic figures who? Who have been uh, uh, promoting these schools? How does he? How does he deal with that? How should he deal with that? Honestly, I don't know how he deals with it. I don't know how I would deal with it. I mean, that's that's a very big burden to overcome. But I think what's really important, as everybody has said, is it's important to acknowledge the truth of what happened, not to try to cover it up, not to try to whitewash it. Or, you know, even the conversations about people like Sir Johnny McDonald to say, well, he did a lot of other great things, and this was just a small part of his narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, you what know, do you say to that? What do you say to people who say that? <laughs> it's it's absurd. I mean, it's like saying that perhaps, you know, Charles Manson, you know, he was actually quite intelligent and very artistic and creative, yeah. and we need to keep... Like, no, we don't, we don't start to try to... We don't start to balance and say that if people do enough good in other areas it somehow negates the horrors they committed. Absolutely not. I think the one thing we need to be very careful of, though, with this process of, you know, renaming institutions is that we don't whitewash our history so completely that eventually we hit a point where it's hard to imagine right now, while this is very fresh in everybody's minds, 
But you can imagine a place 50 years or 100 years from now where our great-great-grandchildren are in their little classrooms and there's no more buildings named after Sir John A. MacDonald and there's no more, you know, Hector Langevin or Ryerson. And we've completely erased the history of atrocity. And yeah, I don't want to end up in that kind of place either. So we need to find ways to no longer hold them up as icons and glorious heroes, but at the same time make sure that we're not erasing the history of what they did at the same time and, you know, therefore whitewashing and ending up at a point where that history disappears and can eventually be denied. Dr. Don Lavelle, Harvard with us, president of the Ontario Native Women's Association, director at Trent University, uh, talking about the investigation moving forward and how we move forward with the discovery of 215 children below uh, the Kamloops, former Kamloops residential school site. Uh, Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're very welcome. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on and talk about uh, events a little closer to home. Heck, there's all sorts of things going on, whether it's LRT or a refurbishing of our entertainment district, uh, which, again, was uh, chatter this week. And as former Laird, uh, former Mayor Larry DeAnne said earlier on in the week, uh, normally this would be a massive story in Hamilton if we weren't dealing with a uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and, of course, even the LRT uh, discussions, because this is a pretty big deal as well. And we're talking about the redevelopment of the downtown entertainment venues, including the Convention Center, the Art Gallery, uh, the First Ontario Center, all of that. And it is now... Uh, before uh, council. Not sure we know more, but to, to find out what we can, let's bring in Larry DeAnne, former mayor of Hamilton, and is with us now. Larry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. Always a pleasure to speak with you. So uh, we were chatting about this a couple of days ago on how this was uh, to go before council and uh, and voted on and such. So what has happened to date? What does this mean? What happened yesterday? Well, it did go before a committee of council, the <clears throat> committee of the whole, called the General Issues Committee, and it was um, dealt with in camera because it deals with uh, contractual issues uh, and uh, memorandum of uh, agreements and such. And so consequently, it had the protection of, uh, of uh, in-camera uh, hearing, but council will have to approve it uh, ratified at their council meeting next week. And once that happens, I, I understand the details of the plan will be made public. But we do know a fair amount about uh, the plan because, of course, it was subject to a, uh, a competitive bidding process mm-hmm. where each uh, of the uh, various uh, companies that were interested in developing, uh, and there, there were several very big entities, um, but they selected... Uh, for lack of a better term, the Mercanti Group. I think they call themselves um, uh, by a different name, but um, the spearheaded by P.J. Mercanti uh, of the Mercanti Group, uh, and there are others, uh, significant entities involved as well. And it's called uh, the and Urban they, It's called the Urban Precinct Entertainment Group, uh, the one you're talking that's about. That's a yep. mouthful, and I'm sure we'll yep. figure out uh, an acronym for that as well. Uh, but but the plans were quite exciting, and uh, they talk about uh, not only dealing with the downtown venues, uh, significant venues that themselves need some considerable dollars to update. And I'm talking about, of course, uh, First Ontario Place, our arena downtown. I'm talking about the convention center, uh, which is uh, in the area as well, and the uh, Art Gallery um, is part of the deal as well, and so uh, is a a housing development, a a residential development, uh, to be more accurate, uh, because it involves a little bit of affordable housing, but also some condo developments and such as well. All told, this is going to bring a huge amount of development right in the heart of our core, which is good news for the citizens of Hamilton. Uh, the fact that this agreement uh, has been reached with this consortium, does that mean that council is on board? Yes. It means that the green light was given um, in camera, and it will be publicly ratified um, next week at the council meeting. And so unless there's a last-minute U-turn, which I do not anticipate, 
uh, it seems that everybody spoke uh, very favorably about it. Uh, the ward councillor, Councillor Jason Farr, of course, in the ward, this is in Councillor Samarola, who initiated this many years ago, a few years ago, uh, wanting to see if there were some uh, takers in the public sector to take the burden of, uh, of uh, paying the ongoing operational costs for these venues off of the shoulders of taxpayers, uh, which, by the way, I was skeptical about when I first heard this, but it turned out to be prophetic because there were interested parties, uh, and the mayor has spoken very positively about this as well. So I do not anticipate any problems. In fact, even other councillors, uh, Councillor Judy Partridge uh, from Waterdown, uh, spoke about the the transformational uh, 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 the, the value of this of this development. So I expect it'll be everybody on board uh, uh, come council meeting, and of course, then the uh, implementation uh, uh, program begins. All right. Are you surprised this, and I don't want to say it was relatively easy because it wasn't. I mean, it's a, it's a long process here, um, but it, it, it's proven to be, or at this point, fruitful. Are you surprised there's so much debate about LRT, but this seemed to be a slam dunk? <laughs> well, you know, LRT, for, for some crazy reason, uh, has become hyper-political and parochial uh, in the minds of some councillors. Uh, whereas this, um, really, how, how can you how can you argue against either project? Tell you the truth, because LRT gives the city 3.4 billion dollars in investment, and that should be a slam dunk, uh, but it isn't. Uh, however, this uh, the value of this project is not only revitalizing these entertainment venues uh, and providing some residential uh, development with uh, some dollars flowing into the city because of taxes that these residences will pay, but it also takes off of the shoulders of taxpayers $155 million or thereabouts uh, over 30 years, about $5 million plus dollars a year in, in taxes that will not have to be paid or shouldered by the city. And that should translate in, in, uh, into a savings for the taxpayers or a cushion against uh, any increases coming forward. I think that's great news, and, and the councillors understand that. Uh, I wish they would, uh, all of them would understand the other equation as well. But in terms of this, there doesn't seem to be any um, uh, appetite for naysaying uh, all of this good news because it cannot really be criticized, can it? No, I, I, this is exactly what I think Hamilton was looking for uh, in the end. What's in this for the consortium? How do they recoup their costs? Well, so there will be some operational um, uh, remuneration uh, for running the venues. You know, uh, the Carmen's Group, for example, has been running the uh, the convention center uh, mm-hmm. for a number of years now, and uh, and they've been saving the city some money, uh, but also uh, making a return on their investment. I, I trust um, as a result of that. And the same can be said for the, uh, uh, for the, uh, certainly, uh, First Ontario, uh, which not only houses the Bulldogs, I don't think there's money to be made there. And by the way, I think the Bulldogs will be part of this equation uh, going forward. Um, but, um, uh, there will be money to be made, uh, on renting the venue, uh, for all the big shows that we've been accustomed to. Uh, and, uh, and of course, the residential development is going to return on investment as well. So that's what's in it for the consortium. Don't know the numbers, but I, I think there's about a $400 million projected investment in residential development, and that will uh, generate tax dollars uh, for the city. It will generate housing, uh, and there's a component of affordable housing there as well but it will generate housing for those who want to live in the downtown. And, of course, it will generate a return on investment for the investors who are part of that consortium. And not only that, uh, the restaurants, uh, the theater venues, Hmm. uh, the uh, stores, the retail stores in that area in downtown will see a rebirth. So it's good news uh, all around because the economy will spin uh, and and reward uh, good hard work 
um, on on the part of everybody that's involved. And so that's good news for everybody. These developments have really changed over the years. I mean, you look back at uh, Jackson Square and, and what happened with the Eaton Center and how it's designed and, and such, and then you look at, at something like this. It's almost night and day in their approach and doing things. And, and the one major difference I can see is the addition of residential, and we're seeing and hearing more and more about that, especially around retail place, whether it's a, a certain malls or or, or what have you. Uh, how important is the residential component to this project? Well, I, I think it's it's key and important. Uh, and if I can just draw it, it's, it's, nice, it's not an exact example. Uh, but if you go down to Burlington and Barry downtown, right, and you see all of those uh, residential condos that have been built, and, and some would say, and I, I might agree, perhaps overbuilt uh, for that narrow uh, Lakeshore um, access point. Uh, but I remember talking when I was in, in the mayor's chair uh, to then Mayor Rob McIsaac, um, and they were just beginning that development there. And I said, Mr. Mayor, are you perhaps over-intensifying? And he said, look, our downtown, this was, this was you know, 15 years ago or so, our downtown needs help. And he said, this intensified development will support all of the retail stores that will be around that development. And that's what happened. You go down to Burlington now, mm-hmm. and, and really, um, uh, it, it is very healthy there downtown, and we want our downtown to flourish as well. Now, we've got lots of residents uh, living around our downtown, but many of them don't shop in the downtown for a number of reasons. But if you construct these residences right on the spot, they will by their very very proximity, be able to do all of their retail shopping, and that's going to raise everybody's profile and increase the viability of all of those stores and uh, and I think make a, a huge huge difference uh, to our to our core. You bring up a valid point, Larry. Uh, yeah, in the last 15, uh, 20 years, I mean, things have greatly changed along that waterfront in Burlington, and, and uh, they certainly have uh, have done a great job of that. It, it, you know, other than, you know, it's just, you're certainly going to get debate over the 500-story tower that they let slip yeah. in there, but that's a whole other story, I guess. That's, that's a whole other area, and, and yeah. you can talk about, you know, um, whether, whether, uh, in any development, and I'm not just picking on Burlington, I just so admire that, that city. Of course, I worked in it for many, many years. Um, but the, the issue is you can always pick a development and say it should have been done a little differently. Yeah. But the general principle of, of increased density, uh, putting more people in an area will lift the economic value of that area. And our core needs it, let's face it. And uh, this is welcome news. So we talked about this the other day too, Larry. That if this if this all moves forward as planned, meaning LRT and the entertainment district, uh, Reno and such, these are two massive projects that are going to change uh, the face of downtown. Any idea of a timeline here? Because it's going to be a pretty busy place at times. Yeah, it, it will be in terms of this development, uh, and of course we will probably get some sense of that once details are released. But I, I see this as a, a five-year, um, at the very least, uh, project to build everything out. I think the priority is the uh, is the arena, is first Ontario place, uh, because obviously you want to get back once COVID, uh, COVID is gone into the into the whole business of entertainment and bringing uh, world-class acts uh, into the arena, and of course uh, also accommodating Mr. Andlauer and the and the Bulldogs. Uh, that um, have been looking for a home. Um, COVID, in a way, um, has been uh, a bit of an advantage. No, COVID is not, is not an advantage in the least. I know what you're saying, though, Larry. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, COVID is absolutely not an advantage. I, you know, the Twitter feed is going to blow up on me. <laughs> in terms of the delay and the fact that nobody's been able to play has given yeah. them a bit of breathing room in terms of uh, where they go next. But they are anxious uh, to, to settle in on a home that's going to be home for a long, long time uh, for the uh, for the uh, Bulldogs. And uh, and so the priority, I think, will be there. And then everything else will build out. I know that uh, I haven't mentioned the 
art gallery, but they're most anxious to expand uh, their footprint a little bit, upgrade uh, their great collection, uh, and although it's not a, a money generator for the city, it certainly isn't a cultural icon for the city that's very, very important to us, and it's also part of this project, which I think was a stroke of genius to include them as well. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of expansion down there. You're talking about expanding the convention center as well. Where is there enough room down there in that block? Well, Where is this that's going? A good question. Initially, this consortium was going to build a new convention center elsewhere. I, I don't know where we are with that. I suspect, if I recall correctly, the last conversation was that no, they're simply going to expand where it currently is. We know that that convention center uh, is dated now, and it's too small, quite frankly, to bring in the kinds of conventions a city of a half a million plus people should generate. So they're going to try to expand that. I I honestly, um, it's been a while since I looked at those plans, and I'm not exactly sure how that's going to happen. But these are the details we'll get once they release the information publicly. And I'll be looking forward to see how creatively they can be in doing that. So what will we find out next Wednesday when this is made public? Anything new, or is it just a, a, re, a reintroduction no. of the plans again? Yeah, I think this will put some flesh to the bones. We, we, we have, you know, the sketch of uh, what was proposed when they publicly made their presentation. Uh, this will provide details, and I'm hoping that as well as details and drawings so that we can visually see what they're planning to do, uh, there may be some timelines attached to that as well. I do know that uh, uh, you know that, that, that they have to look at scheduling and and discussions with potential operators of of the arena, for example, uh, to see who's who's in line and uh, who who might be booked and all of those logistical details that are important to a successful start will have to be accounted for. But I'm hoping that when when this is released publicly, we'll be able to see visually uh, as well as uh, not only the concepts, but uh, but visually what they intend to do and and when uh, they plan to start and uh, and uh, begin moving forward. Very exciting, a very exciting time to be in the hammer. Larry Diani with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, talking about uh, the agreement, approval of the agreement to redevelop the downtown entertainment venues. Uh, and this, of course, along with LRT, is going to drastically change the downtown of Hamilton. Very exciting. Larry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Be well. You too. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.